You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. This week we are absent Paul Doroshenko, but that's just fine because we have a special guest today, Camille Labchuk, who is the executive director of Animal Justice, the host of the Paw and Order podcast, and an expert in animal law. And as I've been promising for a couple weeks, we are doing a podcast extravaganza about animals and the law. Because driving law and animal law actually have a far greater connection than people might think. Animal cruelty laws and transport laws and driving laws intersect in a lot of really interesting ways and there are particular concerns around animals in the summer when it comes to to driving and animals. And so Camille and I are going to get into that a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, and we're also going to end with something not related to animals, only because there was a really interesting judgment released today, well, today at the time of recording, a couple days ago at the time of listening, about uh, about cell phones. And it's not about cell phones so much as it is about procedures in traffic court that are very important. And the court ultimately quashed a conviction and entered an acquittal, finding that a miscarriage of justice has occurred. So we're going to talk a little bit at the end of the podcast about why that was a miscarriage of justice and what this means for future cases going forward. So hold on to your hats. Here we go with another episode of Driving Law. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Driving Law podcast. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest. It's Camille Labchuk. Uh, She is the executive director of Animal Justice. Uh, It's a not-for-profit organization that deals with animals and the law, and it's the only organization in Canada that deals specifically with animal law. So welcome, Camille. Hi, Kyla. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. Um, so you and I were talking before we started recording a little bit about an issue that's been uh, a, a big deal when it comes to animals and cars lately this summer. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, I think, when they think of um, animals and, and cars this summer is just how freaking hot it has been. Um, so you know, you can't even go outside and last too long without wanting to go back to an air conditioner. And uh, people, as usual, when summertime rolls around, keep witnessing um, hot dogs in, left in vehicles, which is obviously a problem. Uh, the temperature inside a, a, a car can rise extremely quickly. Um, you know, I think that if it's about 26 degrees outside within 10 minutes, it could be 37 degrees inside a vehicle. It could be 42 degrees in 20 minutes and up to 46 degrees within a half an hour. So sometimes people think, oh, it's fine. I'll just leave an animal in the car for, for a quick minute. And it ends up um, being a, a huge problem for them because that can obviously uh, kill an animal pretty quickly. So, you know, I think the, the, the hot weather is, is a good reminder that we always need to make sure to keep animals out of vehicles. So what could you face? Like, would a person face any charges if they left an animal in a hot car? Yeah, they could. Uh, they definitely could. So in 
federally, it's a criminal offense to cause unnecessary suffering to an animal. And at the provincial level, the, the laws are all different in every province, but generally it's an offense to cause distress to an animal. And that can include things like it, the animal left being left at an inappropriate temperature, like inside a vehicle. So people uh, can be charged, and they certainly are charged, I think, both criminally and provincially, for leaving dogs and other animals in hot vehicles. Okay. And, like, you deal with a lot of animal justice stuff. What type of sentences do you see for people who who leave their animals in their vehicles? Well, I'm not sure that I could tell you off the top of my head sentences that I've seen recently because the cases uh, are you know, less common as far as, as far as these things go. But generally, the trend when it comes to criminal charges is for there to be jail time imposed. Um, about a decade ago, the government increased the sentences that were available for animal cruelty offenses prosecuted under the criminal code. And uh, previously, there was a six-month maximum sentence that was available. They increased that up to two years um, on indictment. And that uh, trend has definitely been borne out in the sentences we're seeing. So criminal code offenses do tend to carry jail sentences at this point. And provincially, if somebody's charged under a provincial statute, of course, that's more regulatory in nature. Um, you know, in the same way that we would, you know, think of drinking and driving as a criminal offense and some, um, you know, license suspension prohibitions and some other provincial offenses associated with with the same activities at the uh, provincial level that are more regulatory, we also have these animal laws that are more regulatory in nature. So a provincial charge for leaving a dog in a car uh, would be a charge of causing distress, and that would probably be more like a fine or probation, but jail is still available. Wow. Okay. And what about like those big transportation trucks, like trucks taking um, animals to slaughter? There was a, a relatively famous case a couple of years ago of a woman who was charged after she was caught um, giving pigs water who were in a hot truck on their way to the slaughterhouse. Are there any legal implications there? Yeah, that is such an interesting issue to me. And, you know, what we're seeing now is there's, um, and I see this because I work pretty closely with a lot of people who consider themselves animal advocates. And one thing that they do is often go outside slaughterhouses. They see the transport trucks bringing animals into those slaughterhouses that are just full of uh, chickens or more often it's pigs and cows that you can really get up close and see. And, you know, if we think that dogs and and cars have it bad, it's actually far worse for animals like pigs and cows and chickens who are being transported to slaughter. So these activists are able to document the conditions inside those vehicles. The the vehicles are actually open-sided, these slaughter transport trucks. So the animals inside are completely exposed to the weather, so the humidity and the heat. And conversely, of course, in the winter, they're exposed to uh, the open-sided vehicles uh, and, you know, any snow or freezing temperatures that might be there as well. And under Canadian law, Kyla, it's actually shocking. There's no minimum temperature or maximum temperature that you can't transport animals beyond. So basically, any weather condition uh, goes. And what we're seeing is pigs panting, um, pigs overcrowded and climbing on top of each other in these hot vehicles. Uh, the, the people who do the filming are able to uh, stick a thermometer inside the truck so they can get a pretty accurate gauge of how hot they actually are. And they're seeing temperatures over 40 degrees in some cases. So what we've been trying to do through animal justice is we file enforcement complaints with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency which enforces the transportation regulations for animals being shipped to slaughter. 
And, uh, you know, in my view, the, the CFIA doesn't do a very vigorous job of enforcing those regulations. So we're trying to encourage that. And they have undertaken a few investigations. Are there are there plans like is your organization engaged in any plans to try and change the state of the law around this so that there are regulations about the conditions in which animals can be transported? We are actually actively engaged. It's a, actually a pretty big campaign for us. So, you know, background to this, it's, it's actually shocking, but Canada does have animal transport laws, but they were created in 1978. Right. <laughs> so they're, they're now 40 years old, and obviously a lot has changed in 40 years, uh, but not the way we're supposed to transport animals. So the regulations fail on a number of fronts. Obviously, I just spoke about the temperature issues and the fact that animals can be transported in these open-sided vehicles in any weather conditions. But another issue is the length of time that they can be transported. So for uh, for many animals, it's several days at a time. It could be 36 to 52 hours. They can be transported in these vehicles on highways without any access to food, without access to water, and without any ability to rest or, or lie down and get a break from the transport. Do they so when you look at, do you see a lot of animals die in these transports? Yeah, you know what? Official uh, government statistics show that about 2 million animals die uh, on transport and arrive dead or dying at slaughterhouses. I suspect the number is actually much higher than that, but, but they may um, use different me- metrics to make it appear lower. Right. Wow. So what yeah. what steps are you guys, I mean, without revealing your whole strategy, what steps are you guys taking to try and try and change this? Oh, well, there's, there's nothing secret about it at all. We're being very public about it. So um, a couple of years ago, actually for quite some time, the government has said it would change the transport legs. So it's consulted on that for a few years. In December of 2016, it released a new proposal to change the regulations. But unfortunately, it was barely better than what we have now. Uh, they reduced some of the transport times for different animals by a small amount. But uh, we also filed a bunch of access to information requests uh, through through various animal groups. And what came back was some pretty disturbing evidence that any time the industry objected to what the government really wanted to do and what the science said the government should do, the industry concerns won out. So chickens uh, are a really good example. Uh, the science says that chickens show signs of poor welfare after being transported for 12 hours and that that should be the maximum. And the industry came back and said, yeah, that's going to interfere with our profits, so we're going to need you to change that to 24 hours. And unfortunately, the government did make that change. So those regulations, yeah, it's it's really really shocking. But how is that even consistent with the criminal law that says that you can't, or or I guess the regulatory law at the provincial level that says you can't allow an animal to be in distress? You know, it's a, it's a really it's a really good issue, and I'm glad you're asking because that is the right question. Uh, we think that in a lot of cases, there's definitely violations of provincial and federal regulatory transport laws when when animals animals are being transported in this way. Um, it's also a, um, an offense to cause an animal undue suffering while transporting them under those federal transport regs. But then the question, Kyla, always becomes, what does that word undo mean? It implies that there is a certain amount of distress. It's acceptable so that industry can continue to, you know, use its business model and and make profits the way it does. So, you know, when when there's vague language like that, in my view, the animals always lose. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, we've, uh, you probably haven't listened to the previous episodes of this podcast because it's outside your, your area, but uh, we've had a lot of, of guests come on here and say that at the end of the day in anything for government, it comes down to who has the money and whose bottom line is going to be affected. I couldn't agree more. I, uh, my view of law is that it's a power relationship. <laughs> and essentially, uh, you know, those with more power relative to those with less power are the ones who are essentially in control at this point. And to make things change and to get better laws in place, we just need to shift that power dynamic. So I think that's why it's really important that we are seeing so much activism around these transport regulations, around the conditions that animals are being transported in. Because the more people know about this and understand, and I'm thankful to you for having me on so I can talk about this to your listeners, I think the more people understand about this, the more they're motivated to contact the government and tell them that's not good enough anymore. Yeah. And can they like can they donate to your organization or or do something to help your the work that you're doing? Yeah, they can. So animaljustice.ca slash donate. You can check out what we're all about and make a contribution there if you like. And uh, we, you know, really appreciate the support. I think that for a long time, people just didn't understand what was happening to animals in this country. And the tragic reality is is that Canada has some of the worst animal protection laws in the Western world when it comes to transport or federal animal cruelty laws, like I could go on. And people are starting to wake up to that. And that can only be a good thing. Yes. What? So we, we talked a little bit about the, the pig case. What You must have followed that. What happened to the woman in the end when she was giving water to those pigs? Yeah, this is a super interesting one. So, you know, back to this whole idea that pigs are suffering while they're transported in, in open-sided vehicles on hot days. One of these activists, uh, her name's Anita Crimes, and she's actually one of the people who started this sort of movement of activists going to slaughterhouses and documenting the conditions that animals are arriving in. She was doing this one day outside a slaughterhouse called Fairman's Pork in Burlington, Ontario. It was a really hot day in June. It was uh, June 2015, and uh, they were giving some water to the pigs. So because these vehicles are, are kind of open-sided and they have these large slats in them, you can actually reach a hand in there and give uh, a pig, a thirsty pig, a bottle of water or a piece of watermelon or whatever. And uh, the activists were seeing that these pigs were really dehydrated, that it was an extremely hot and humid day, and they were providing them with some water and just a moment of comfort on their final ride. Um, and they been doing this quite a lot but on one particular day the trucker who was driving that shipment of pigs he got out and he confronted Anita and called her some bad words and said that he didn't want her to give water to the pigs and she responded that they were suffering and what was he going to do about that and they sort of had a bit of an altercation but then um, that was it and he went back to the truck and, and life moved on. A few months later the police come to her door and tell her that they're charging her with criminal mischief for her act of giving water to pigs. And it was shocking to everyone at the time, and it actually became a global news story pretty quickly. Uh, You know, you've got a situation where somebody's trying to give an animal a a moment of comfort, a suffering animal, a moment of comfort on their last ride, and she's being prosecuted for criminal mischief for allegedly interfering with property, um, the the, the use and operation of of property, which, of course, is... um, part of uh, one branch of the mischief offense under the criminal code. So she she went through a trial. No, no, she wasn't convicted. So um, there was a lengthy trial. It actually took multiple court dates. 
Um, I believe they first set it down for maybe a week and it was adjourned and they had to keep coming back for more evidence and more arguments. So it started in August 2016 and the verdict actually came out in May of, of uh, 2017. So she was acquitted. And the reason that she was acquitted is the judge found that there was no interference with anybody's property. Now, yeah. the property in this case, of course, would be the pigs. Uh, the pigs are owned by the farmer and they're being sold to the slaughterhouse. So, um, you know, if somebody were to interfere with them, that unfortunately could be the offensive mischief, even though most people don't think of animals just as pure property. But the judge found that there was no interference. The pigs were supposed to arrive at the slaughterhouse. They were supposed to be slaughtered. And that's exactly what happened. Nothing that she did prevented that. No, there's no like you have to have no water for 12 hours before slaughter or any rule like that. No, no, there's nothing like that at all. And, you know, arguably those transport regulations were being violated because the pigs were experiencing um, suffering during that, that hot, hot heat. So one of the interesting arguments advanced at trial, and this would be especially of interest to any lawyers on the podcast, uh, the offensive mischief involves interfering with the lawful use or enjoyment of property. And one of the arguments was that it wasn't actually lawful to be transporting the pigs on that day because it was right. too hot. But unfortunately, the judge just found that in this particular case, the evidence didn't really bear that out. Interesting. Now, that's that's a good point about the lawful use of property, because that sort of brings me to my next question I had for you, which is for, for sort of the non-commercial uh, transport of animals, like people who take their pets in their cars. And what happens if you're a person, you see an animal in a hot car, what's your exposure if you break the window of the car to give the animal some relief? That's a great question. So I it's likely that a person could be charged with that same offense that the woman who gave water to pigs face, which is the criminal offense of mischief. So if you damage somebody else's property, that's typically a mischief offense. So you break a, a window to rescue a dog, and um, that could be criminal conduct. Now, I don't know about you, Kyla, but I would not want to be the crime prosecutor to prosecute that case, oh, <laughs> because no. I think the public would be pretty unhappy. <laughs> I'd be the person breaking the window, to be honest. I'd be like, ah, I can yeah. pay for a window. I'll get diverted. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, I mean, is it is it likely that anyone would ever face charges for that? Have you seen that ever? I have heard of cases. Um, I spoke with somebody recently who told me that she had been charged with an offense and um, she couldn't recall, I don't think, what that offense was. It was it was some time ago, but she had done exactly that. She'd removed a, a dog from a hot vehicle and she had either received a ticket or had to go to court and um, I believe it was resolved in some other way. Right. I don't think it ended up in a, in a conviction. And uh, we receive emails all the time at Animal Justice from people just with legal issues and questions and I have received emails emails there before too. Um, somebody emailed and said that she had a relative who, who was maybe facing a similar charge. So I think it's possible, but you know, like you said, I'd, I'd be surprised if these cases went very far because I think the equity of it yeah. and the injustice that the animal was facing is obviously much worse than the, the cost of repairing a window. Right. And, and that's a defense, right? The idea that the person's not using their vehicle lawfully because they're using it essentially as a place to cause an animal suffering. So you can take the actions to end that. Is there also, like, perhaps a necessity argument available? Yeah, there very well could be. I've I've never seen it adopted yet or 
even argued in any great detail in any case, but I think that there very well could be um, a really interesting necessity case made there. The um, the woman who gave water to pigs, Anita Crimes, her lawyers also advanced the argument that she was acting in the public good, sort of a, a novel defense that the judge didn't ultimately accept, but I think this is one of those situations where the fairness of the situation is, is so clearly on the side of the animal who's suffering that it might be an interesting case to advance a novel defense like one of those. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the law on necessity doesn't require human life to be at risk, from what I understand from reading the cases. They all usually involve human life, but it doesn't, it doesn't appear to be like an essential element of the defense that has to be proven. Yeah, and that's what I, as an animal lawyer, I always look for those situations where you you can take something that people have thought just as it applies to humans, but then extend it to um, to animals who deserve the respect and consideration under the law that that we get as well. All right, and what about like your obligations as a driver when you've got an animal in your car? Like for example, I have a dog, and um, he's been featured on this podcast with his barking in the background frequently, <laughs> but he, um, uh, he hates, hates riding in the car and he gets super anxious and stressed out and he's, you know, crying. Like, I mean, he's mostly for show cause he just wants me to unroll the window, but um, he, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't enjoy the car trip. And I always worry about the way that he gets so stressed that he actually puts himself in more danger. If, you know, I have to slam on the brakes suddenly, are there obligations on pet owners to do something to protect their animal when in the car and when driving? There are, actually, and it varies from province to province, but I took a look at BC's laws, um, and and like most other provinces, BC does have some requirements in there about transporting animals. So it says a person responsible for an animal must not transport the animal by vehicle except inside the passenger compartment um, or confined in a way that's going to prevent the animal from falling, from being injured during transport, or causing a hazard to the safe operation of um, that vehicle or another vehicle. So the law does require that people secure their animals appropriately, both to protect them and uh, to protect road safety. Right. Okay. So, I mean, potentially a dog seatbelt is necessary um, under the, the British Columbia laws. Yeah, I wonder. It doesn't specify a seatbelt, but I, I could see if, if they're you know, say somebody had a dog who was really active and was moving around the whole time, or even a, a cat. I sometimes take my cats, and one of them got out of the carrier one time and was crawling all over the car. <laughs> um, you know, that could be a problem if the animal's not confined or secured in a way that could prevent them from, like, falling out or being injured. So a seatbelt, I could see maybe it, it would arguably be required for some really boisterous animals. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, that's sort of consistent with the driving laws that we have here, because we also have provisions under our Motor Vehicle Act that um, require, uh, for example, that there's nothing obstructing the controls of a vehicle, so you can't be driving with your dog on your lap. Um, so you could have you could have two separate statutes, potentially, that you're violating by by doing that. Oh, yeah, that that makes total sense, and I'm sure they'd love to charge people under both if they could. Uh, yeah, usually they want the ticket because there's points, and then they can take away people's licenses. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> what are, what, so what type of penalties could you could you face? Did you look into that about um, about having your your dog on your lap while you're while you're driving? Yeah, well, so this is an offense under the um, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, and the penalties I, they're 
there are actually fairly steep penalties available. There's definitely fines of, uh, of thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, you often see people getting probation under this legislation and occasionally jail. Um, I don't know in this particular case. I, I haven't come across any cases involving people not transporting animals property, properly, certainly not their own companion animals. So who knows what that would end up being, but I, I would think a fine at the least. Is it rare to see cases where people are charged with sort of transportation of animal-related offenses? I don't see that many relative to, I mean, the typical type of animal case that you see prosecuted is just one about an individualized act of sort of sadistic or malicious cruelty, like somebody hitting or kicking a dog or a cat. And I find um, other cases are, are prosecuted much less frequently. I suspect uh, sometimes people might get off with a warning more often in those cases, especially if there was no actual injury to the animal. Do you like? Do you have a tough time with that? I know, um, you know, we we talk on this this podcast about driving a lot. And my uh, last guest uh, last week, we talked about, or two weeks ago, I guess, uh, we talked about impaired driving causing death and bodily harm cases and how you sort of separate yourself. I can't take those cases involving animals and, and that have been abused or, you know, like the dog that's found in the ditch all duct taped up and with stab Aww. marks and stuff. Like, I just, I, I can't do it. I start crying. It's horrible. How do you, like, how do you manage that? How do you, as a lawyer separate your obvious care and compassion for animals with the, you know, the heinous facts that you see in cases that you're, you're dealing with? It's such an interesting question. Like you, I actually used to be a criminal defense lawyer, and I was always passionate about animal law, and everyone knew I'd transition to this field before too long, and I did. But it always occurred to me, you know, what would I do if one of those cases came across my desk? I'm, I'm generally just so pro-defense lawyers, and I really view that profession as the uh, the thin line that separates um, you know, the state from the rest of citizens and protects our rights from state intrusion. Yet at the same time, I don't know that I could personally take on one of those cases either, and I've always felt a little bit conflicted about that sort of dual role of the defense lawyer but, but the animal lawyer. Um, but I guess for me now, I, I don't have to confront it too much because as the executive director of animal justice, we we don't take on cases on behalf of anyone else. We are our own client, essentially. So we do lobby campaigns, we do litigation, but we do it in our own name. So if I sue someone, it's uh, on behalf of animal justice. So luckily, I don't have to deal with that. Um, but I certainly have sympathy for, for anyone who does. I think the, the root of it is, is the power imbalance. People recognize that animals are the most vulnerable victims that you can imagine. They're right up there with um, with infants and, and small children who also have a difficult time communicating on behalf of themselves. And, you know, I think it's really difficult for people to, to understand um, how anyone could treat an animal in, 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 in such a cruel way. And, yeah, I, I think that's the root of it. So I'm sympathetic. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you don't have to deal with it because I was imagining that, you know, you were always, you know, going in as an, an advocate for animal rights in cases where there's that type of of behavior. And I thought, man, that must take a huge emotional toll. But <laughs> thankfully, you can you can avoid that. That's um, probably good because I think a lot of that would keep you up at night. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it would. It's very gratifying now, and I'm very grateful to be in this position because we can be, always be that voice squarely on the side of the animals. So if people want to get involved in trying to change some of the laws around animal uh, transportation that we've talked about today, what, what steps can they do to help you guys out? 
Well, they can visit animaljustice.ca. We've got some, some links on there about our transport campaigns. And I, I can't emphasize this enough, but one of the most important things I think that all of us should be doing, and this applies to whether you want laws changed in the field of animal rights or poverty rights or some other um, field where you see that there should be a change, it's so important to develop a relationship with your member of parliament, with your member of provincial parliament or MLA, um, and even with your city councillor. Uh, they Far too often people think, well, there's no point in, in bothering to meet with these people because they're not going to do the right thing anyway. And I always say, well, of course they won't if they don't know about the issues. And oftentimes politicians get really involved and engaged in an issue just because of one constituent who was passionate enough to point that out to them, that there was a problem. So I think people uh, should make a point of developing a relationship with all of those politicians and meet with them regularly to voice those concerns. Awesome. And uh, you gave us your website earlier. How else can people reach you if they need to get in touch with you? Well, we're pretty active on our Facebook account as well. Just search for Animal Justice on Facebook, um, at Animal Justice on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Animal Justice underscore. And I'm on um, Twitter and Instagram as well. And it's just uh, first name Camille, last name Labchuck. So look us up. Okay. And last thing I'm going to make you promote is your podcast. Oh, thank you. I almost <laughs> forgot. and, and <laughs> I'd be in trouble if I had. You so, can't call out uh, a podcast and not mention your own podcast. <laughs> oh, I know. That's the first rule. <laughs> so I'm uh, the co-host of a podcast called Paw in Order. I, I co-host it with Professor Peter Sankoff at the uh, University of Alberta. He's, a, he's an animal law professor. And we started it probably like you, you you saw there was no driving podcast and thought well i should get in on that and um we really wanted to help bring animal law information to people break the legal issues down in a way that's understandable for your average person you do not need to be a lawyer to listen to this podcast (laughs) and we have a little bit of fun along the way awesome great well uh everybody should definitely tune in to the paw and order podcast and uh get in touch with animal justice and donate because they are doing some really important work at trying to create better laws to protect animals while being fair to everybody else who has to deal with animals so um reach out to camille and animal animal justice and thank you again camille for coming on the podcast i really appreciate you taking the time It was such a pleasure, Kyla. Thank you for having me on. And maybe we can get you on Paw and Order one day. I hope so. Thank you again to Camille Labchuk for coming on the podcast and telling us all that very interesting and useful information about animals and uh, cars, because I think a lot of people don't realize that there is this really great intersection, to pun off that, um, between animals and cars. And and it's another area in which driving law is actually driving the law. We see animal justice driving changes, potentially and hopefully, to federal transport laws involving animals. And it has to do directly with driving. So that's absolutely fantastic. I wanted to switch gears a little bit for the end of the podcast to talk about a recent decision from the BC Supreme Court. Uh, This week, 
The BC Supreme Court released reasons in a case called Regina and Singh. It's actually a conviction appeal from a cell phone ticket. And Mr. Singh had been given a cell phone ticket. Interestingly, he argued at trial that the officer had not uh, been the same officer who gave him the ticket and investigated him, that it was somebody else entirely in the courtroom than who'd been dealing with him at, uh, at the roadside. And that's an important issue because the officers aren't allowed to testify about things that they didn't witness and have the ticket convictions stand on that. And in support of his arguments, Mr. Singh filed a number of documents, um, or tendered a number of documents, but didn't uh, have them filed and marked as exhibits, including a diagram that he drew in court showing the location of various police vehicles, where other officers were, and explaining how it was that the officer who testified in court couldn't have been the one who dealt with him roadside and issued him the ticket. And the reason that that uh, became important was that on appeal, all of his sort of substantive arguments on appeal were never considered. But the prosecutor at the appeal level agreed that his case was wrongly decided on the basis of the fact that his diagram that he drew at trial, which was essential to his defense, was not actually marked as an exhibit and filed. And so when it came time for the court to review the record on appeal, they weren't able to actually ascertain what the evidence was that was before the judicial justice of the peace because that evidence was lost. There was a search of the court file done, searches done, nothing turned up, this this document was lost forever because it wasn't properly marked and preserved as evidence. And the court characterized this, in fact, as a miscarriage of justice, which is a pretty significant thing in law. A miscarriage of justice is where somebody has been wrongfully convicted. It is, it is one of the things that we have to try and avoid as much as possible as lawyers, as judges, as prosecutors, as police officers prosecuting their tickets. It's designed to be avoided. And the fact that the officer did not take steps to avoid the miscarriage of justice and the pro uh, the judicial justice didn't take steps to avoid the miscarriage of justice, Mr. Singh, of course, being self-represented, couldn't be blamed. That ended up being a significant problem, enough that the court said there's no sense in sending this back for a new trial. Rather, the conviction ought to be quashed and an acquittal entered. So rather than the ordinary course where a new trial was ordered, the entire ticket was thrown out because of the miscarriage of justice. And that raises really interesting concerns for numerous traffic court trials. I've dealt with hundreds, thousands, I don't know, I've lost count, too many traffic tickets to know, and I've sat in traffic court, either waiting for my turn at a trial or because I'm out of town for a traffic ticket trial and my matter's done or is, is waiting to go ahead or whatever the case may be. I've watched countless traffic court trials. I've conducted numerous trials in traffic court. And it's very common. This is a commonplace thing in traffic court for people to introduce diagrams as part of their evidence. In fact, in the traffic courtrooms in Vancouver, there's a whiteboard mounted on the wall for people to draw their diagram of what happened. I have one that sticks out in my mind in particular, where the officers were drawing a diagram to show their position relative to the flow of traffic in a radar case, um, particularly because the angle of the radar and the position and the interruptions from flow of other traffic becomes relevant to the reliability of the radar reading. But if you draw a diagram on a whiteboard, how do you preserve that for an appeal record? 
What do you do with it? Do you take the whiteboard off the wall after every trial, mount a new whiteboard for the next person that comes along, and then wrap the thing in plastic and hope the ink doesn't degrade? I I mean, it's impossible to preserve that evidence. And in that case, as in hundreds, thousands of other cases, that evidence is lost forever. And this decision puts in jeopardy potentially hundreds or thousands even of traffic court decisions where convictions have been entered, but the evidentiary record upon which those convictions were entered was not preserved in the event of an appeal. People may potentially have the opportunity to apply for an extension of the time to appeal their traffic court conviction if they have good reasons to apply for an extension. And for those who are still within their appeal periods, if their uh, written documents, their drawings, their, their, their diagrams, the documentation put on a whiteboard in the middle of the trial, if that wasn't preserved, it's possible that all of those convictions could also be tossed due to a miscarriage of justice. What I expect to see from this is an instantaneous change in traffic court procedure. This decision is so significant to the process that's followed in traffic court and so significant to the outcomes of traffic court cases and the appeals that I think it will be disseminated to the justices who sit in traffic court almost immediately. They probably all already know about it. And what we're likely to see as a result is a number of of, uh, convictions potentially overturned, but also a lot more care taken in the course of traffic court trials to ensure that that documentary evidence is properly preserved in the event of an appeal. I think what else it's going to do is pose a huge amount of challenges for traffic court. Traffic court is required to happen expeditiously. And the reason for that is that usually there's, you know, 20, 30 different people showing up, all of whom want to deal with their tickets. And the court counts on the likelihood that half the people probably won't show up and the other half the people will either plead guilty and ask for a fine reduction or make some sort of deal. There'll be tickets dismissed because an officer doesn't show up. But there are going to be, in most traffic court sessions, cases that proceed to trial. And so... If you take longer, if you have more than one case that that is going to trial, I spoke with an officer last week who said that he on one day had 12 tickets and all 12 showed up and all 12 were for trial. I said, what did you do? And he said, we had a lot of adjournments. Um, I frankly think that's a bit of a lackadaisical attitude towards the Jordan requirements of ensuring that things happen quickly and the encouragement that Crown has been given from the Supreme Court of Canada to make deals to eliminate delays rather than refuse to make reasonable deals to facilitate uh, the avoidance of delay. But, you know, that's an aside. The point is that this is going to change things significantly and suck up more court time. It's not an instantaneous process to mark something as an exhibit. You have to go through certain steps uh, to lay a foundation for it to be introduced as an exhibit, uh, steps in relation to authenticity um, and uh, who authored or created the document. And then the document has to be marked and a certain exhibit um, tag is usually placed on the document and then it's stored in the court file. Traffic courtrooms don't function like other courtrooms where you have a clerk that's sitting there that's actually able to fill that out while the trial's going on and everything's continuing. You're going to have to sit there in the middle of your traffic court trial, in the middle of your evidence, while your diagram is being marked as an exhibit by the Justice of the Peace, and wait. It's going to interrupt the flow of testimony. It's going to interrupt the flow of, of court time, and it will take court time away from other trials. It will delay the process. And this is one of the things that the judge recognized in in the decision that 
this week. He recognized that traffic court is meant to be expeditious, but it's not meant to be expeditious uh, where it gets to the point that it compromises the fairness of the trial procedure. And I am very concerned that this judgment and the ultimate fallout from it is going to be the type of thing that encourages the government to implement the traffic ticket tribunal that they've sort of been threatening for all this time. This is going to be the thing that pushes the government over the edge and says, okay, you know what, we're done having trials for traffic court. And I worry that while there's an upshot to the judgment in that there's going to be a fairer procedure for now in traffic court, a better procedure, better preservation of the evidence, and potentially wrongful convictions overturned as a result of this judgment, there's also going to be the downtick in that government's going to see that this is starting to cost too much money, that this isn't the expeditious and convenient process that has been envisioned under the Offense Act, and they're going to take it away. If you can't, you know, if you can't use it nicely, then you can't have your toy. Except traffic court isn't a toy. And my worry is that this judgment is actually going to lead to more negatives than positives. That it's going to be sort of a stepping stone for government to implement bad legislation that makes the process far less fair, that eliminates by statute the right of appeal, and that encourages you all along to enter a guilty plea by effective bribery, by saying, oh, we'll give you a fine reduction if you plead guilty. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll knock off some consequences if you enter a guilty plea. A three-stage process at each stage you're encouraged to plead guilty. And with the significant consequences that come from traffic convictions, and in particular cell phone convictions, which Mr. Singh's case was, I think that that type of an outcome, that type of fallout is something that we should strictly avoid. And so I did want to spend a few minutes at the end of the podcast to talk about that, to raise my concerns about this judgment and where it might take us, despite the fact that I think the judgment overall is very sound, solid, and a fair approach to uh, a problem that's been ongoing in traffic court that really nobody has identified or taken any steps to deal with until now. And while it might have been a very innocent problem in how it's uh, in how it's played out, uh, it has, as we can see in the Singh case, led to significant problems on appeals of decisions. And the courts can't just be concerned with looking at the evidence that's before them in a trial, the courts also have to think about the long-term implications for what they're doing with the evidentiary record that is before the judge. And so that is why that case is important and why it's one to watch and the outcome of it is one to watch over the next little while. I'll be very interested as I follow this and the development and fallout from it in traffic court to see how procedures change and how the government reacts. But um, between now and then, I'm also interested to see whether there is an appeal of the decision and the outcome given its potential to impact so many other cases in the future. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. And if you like our podcast, you can follow it on Twitter. It's got its own Twitter account at Driving Law Pod. Or you can uh, reach out to us at Acumen Law, uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give me a call, 604-685-8889, or shoot me an email. My email's on the website, um, and I'm happy to take any of your driving-related questions. Next week, we'll be back with more driving law content, because it's driving law that drives the law. 